0: I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Layla Madrone, the co-founder and chief technology officer of Sunfolding. Layla is a former NASA engineer who used her experience to create a new kind of tracking system that eliminates expensive components and reduces the installed cost of solar. In this interview, I talk with Layla about her path from an experimental musician to NASA roboticist to technical executive envisioning the future for solar electromechanics. This conversation was recorded live in 2018 at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California. Our friend venture investor Emily Fritzie sets the scene.
1: I first heard about Layla Madrone back in 2015 when I was working at the Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency, Energy, a program that funds early-stage whiz-bang energy technology and de-risk it so that the private sector is more likely to continue funding it. Layla, at the time, was developing the prototype for what is now Sunfolding. Out of Other Lab, a quirky lab and incubator based in an old, pipe organ factory in the mission in San Francisco. Layla, an an MIT-trained scientist, had been working on robots for NASA when she started to become interested in clean energy. It started with a seemingly simple idea. Solar trackers move solar panels over the day to create the most energy, but they're made of heavy, expensive components. What if you could develop a new, cheaper, more efficient tracker using premium plastic materials and a system that with the power of air, moves the solar panels to maximize energy production. With that idea, Layla built, tested, demonstrated, and created what is now Sunfolding's air drive technology that combines the functionality of motors, gears, dampers, and batteries into a single component primarily composed of air. And the opportunity is significant. Solar trackers are the fastest growing segment of solar growing from $1 billion in 2016 to a $4 billion opportunity in 2022. Sunfolding is now preparing to disrupt that market. They're in production and delivering to customers, and Leila Madrone is the force behind it, a powerhouse indeed. Help me by giving a big round of applause for Leila Madrone, founder and CTO of Sunfolding, and Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse.
0: Um, So we'd love to start by hearing a little bit about your childhood and uh, how you grew up, where you grew up, how it influenced who you are today.
2: Yeah, so I was born pretty close to here in Berkeley, uh, but I can't consider myself a local because when I was three, uh, my father got a job at Bell Labs on the East Coast, so we moved cross-country, and I moved from Berkeley to Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. Um, Grew up in suburbia, um, and... um, you know, basically, uh, the things that I love to do in suburbia were, um, Basic go go ride horses and do math, um, and and so so it wasn't a, it wasn't a terrible upbringing, but I had this really great opportunity, which was my father was actually from Pakistan, um, and a little bit about his story, um, he his father was the ambassador to the UN from Pakistan, so he came to New York when he was a teenager, um, and fell in love with the U.S., then uh, also fell in love with my mom and decided that he was never going to leave, um, but his family still lived in Pakistan, so about one or two months every single year we would go to Pakistan and I got to experience this entirely different culture. And I would say going from kind of the stagnancy of suburbia to the vibrancy of this completely different culture, I think really helped form who I am. And I think it also gave me this bug for travel that I've had for my entire life. Um, so, so, uh, Getting getting through suburbia with my love of math, I finally found my my way to MIT, um, where I would say all of my dreams started coming true, dreams I never knew I even had, actually. Um, So uh, one of my earliest memories of MIT um, was uh, I had declared math, um, but I was doing an applied physics lab and uh, my partner and I decided we were going to build a Tesla coil. And this was my first time actually building something. I had always done, I'd always loved the kind of beauty of math, but I had never actually applied it to make something that did something. What's
0: a Tesla coil?
2: (laughs) Great question. So uh, (laughs) the really short answer is that a Tesla coil is a machine that puts off Huge, beautiful arcs of electricity and has really no purpose other than that. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, we built this. And I remember being in the room, seeing these three-foot-long arcs, and I was smitten. completely smitten with this idea that you could take uh, these concepts and then create something that had beauty and power and that was so visceral. And so I immediately switched my major uh, to electrical engineering. Um, And from there, I just had a lot of amazing experiences at MIT. I fell in with the right crowd, whatever that means. But it was just a group of people who are really into building things. Uh, We built a foundry and a forge in our backyard. Uh, We built all sorts of amazing uh, Uh, things together. Um, And uh, actually, I really didn't ever want to leave MIT. So I did my undergrad and then my grad there. And then finally, I had to graduate and go do something. Um, So I had had really gotten into robotics and automation when I was in MIT. So when I graduated, I was looking for how could I apply that skill set somewhere where I really cared. Uh, So I started working at a biotech company that was was working on the robotics that basically move around uh, microfluidics uh, for doing acid. Um, And it was a really interesting job because I felt that what we were doing was using my robotic skills to help cure cancer and had a really great experience with my first startup there. Um, But after about four years of working there, I realized that, well, yes, I guess we kind of were curing cancer. What we really were doing was powering big pharma. And I felt that I was kind of at the end of of doing something like that. Um, So... So at that point, I said, okay, um, this has been a great time, but uh, I think I'm ready for something new. So while I was in Boston, I had been um, playing with a Balinese gamelan. And I'm not, how many people here know what a Balinese gamelan is? Oh, good. Pretty good. Uh, So it's actually a suite of metallophones that come from Bali and Indonesia.
0: How many people Uh, know what a metallophone is?
2: Okay. (laughs) It's a xylophone made of metal. Um, But what's neat about the, the gamelan is it's in this beautiful pentatonic scale and you play it Basically, faster than you can imagine anyone playing anything. So, this is really explosive, powerful music. And I had become obsessed with it when I was at MIT. Um, and I had been playing with a Gamelon for many years there. And uh, around the same time I was getting tired of working for Pharma, uh, they decided that they were going to go on tour. Uh, so, I said, this is a great opportunity. So, I, I drop my, shipped my stuff to San Francisco and went on tour with the Gamelon. Uh, which was great. We actually ended up playing um, at Carnegie Hall, which was incredible, uh, as well as all over Bali, um, which is this great experience um, that was so wonderful that I decided not to leave for a while. So I ended up studying music in Bali um, until the money ran out and I realized I probably should come back to the U.S. and start working (laughs) working in robots again.
0: Uh, Did you know when you were there, did you know you were going to come back to robotics or were you thinking you may just do music forever in Bali?
2: I had the desire at some point to think about pursuing music as a longer term passion. Um, And in fact, when I was in Boston, I had co-founded a group called Ensemble Robot, which was a group where we had I built robots that played music, um, and I partnered with a friend who was a composer, um, and we were creating these kind of new pieces for robot and human interaction. Uh, one of our pieces was at the Museum of Science in Boston, and uh, it basically was a couple of robots playing playing very fast uh, with live performers, uh, as well as in the in the Hall of Electricity. City in Boston, there's a Vandagraph generator that's several stories tall. Um, and what you may not know is you can actually um, uh, there's actually an interface where you can play it. So we had a, a composition for robots, humans, Van de Graaff player, VandeGraph, and Tesla coil. What year um, was this? This was in 2005. It's way ahead of really, any was,
0: robotic music out there today. It was really maximal. <laughs> <laughs> it's really maximal. So you so you drop shift you're, you drop shipped your stuff to San Francisco. You're in Bali doing music, yeah. And then at some point you decide to come back.
2: I, I felt that um, I loved doing art, uh, but it is really hard to do the art life, and you have to just have so much together to make that really work for you. And I still had this great passion to use ro- to use robotics to. Have meaning in the world as well. So when I got, and, and I also had a lot of student debt that might have factored <laughs> a little bit into this. So I got to San Francisco um, and pretty much immediately got a job at NASA, which had actually been my dream from when I was seven years old. When I was seven, I got a NASA jacket that I'd more every single day until it burst at the seams. Um, but finally had my dream job of working at NASA. I was working in their intelligent robotics group uh, down in Ames and has, was working there a few years. And it was really exciting to be around all of these amazing NASA scientists that had been there for decades and decades and decades. But this this thing was happening in the world with uh, people I knew, as well as I think the general idea of uh, climate change and energy being the big problem that we need to solve. And I just felt this growing sense in myself that what I needed to do was apply my skill set there. So I need to, I decided I needed to switch into energy. So 11 years ago, I said, you know, I'm just going to Find a job in energy and and start moving on this path. Um, And I decided that solar seemed like where uh, the most uh, possibility was for the future. Um, So I actually got a solar job pretty fast uh, at a company called Greenvolts. Uh, that was working on this really interesting technology. They were working on CPV. It took all of my robotic skills, and I got to apply it to solar because you need these really precise machines to move around the modules. Um, And after about four years of working there and learning about solar and solving all these really, really hard problems, I had this realization that this is so such interesting technology that is never going to matter because it's just too expensive and too complicated. And I would look at these machines that were had so much put into them for the precision and for how large they were and the wind loads they had to deal with, and then there was just not that much energy coming out of this small area. And I d- it just did not compute at any single level.
0: So... You were there for four years. It sounds like it was, was it a steady job? You know, it was was actually a very
2: well-funded startup.
0: Okay. Okay. So you were relatively comfortable, but then decided this thing was never going to have the kind of impact on the world that you wanted to make. Um, So did you quit? Did you know what you were going to do next?
2: Yeah. So I I guess this is a theme. I decided I would go travel. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I had also gotten recently married. So I said, this is a great opportunity. Let's go on a year-long sabbatical honeymoon. And let's just, let's get, let's change our perspective. Uh, So we traveled all over the world, but especially through Asia, India, the Middle East. Um, And at first I went with this intention. I was like, I'm going to figure out the solution to all the world's problems by the time I get back. And it's so humbling when you travel because you just realize how little you know. And the moment I got out there, I said, okay, the point of me being out here is just to listen. It's just to observe, to feel, to listen. Just That's the only job I have. I'm not going to come back with a million dollar idea. This is, this is much bigger than me. So I g- came back. Uh, we had a lot of incredible adventures. Uh, I saw how hard it was to deploy any kind of technology most places in the world. That was maybe one of my biggest lessons. Um, but then arrived back in San Francisco and um, was ready to do something different. Um, and that's when I that's when I teamed up with uh, Saul Griffith at other lab and started it became SunFolding.
0: Did you know at that point? Did you come back saying I'm going to start something? And and if so, what was the drive to? No, not okay. at,
2: no, not at all. You know, I'd always uh, played with the idea of starting something, um, but uh, I actually um, had gotten when I got back, I got a job at Tesla. Um and so I was going to be starting at Tesla, but their hiring process was so long that I ended up talking to Saul along the way. Um and I said, you know, I just I just really wanna make impact in solar and I just feel like all these companies are working on things. Nothing's really happening. There's been so much investment. How do we push this forward in a way that is really innovative? And he said, "You know, I, I had some ideas about this." He's like, "Why don't you come by tomorrow?" And I came by, and he like gave me this stack of papers. He's like, "What do you think?" And I was like, "I think I need a little more time to look at this." And but but uh, and and it was just it was like all of these ideas, a lot of ideas, and there was there was this one theme throughout it that I saw that I just I was like, "This is kind." of this is crazy and all over the place but wait a second this thing here this idea that what if we created machines in a different way if you could create a machine in a different way then you wouldn't necessarily you could potentially get around that problem I saw when I was looking at those giant complex machines that were only getting a little bit of energy for this amazing amount of material Um, and I saw that there was this spark there um, and I got really interested in it. So while I was kind of waiting for Tesla to move forward. I just started working on the sunfolding ideas and and, and and studying them and starting to play around with them. And then by the Wait, time... Wait, I have to stop
0: you. Sorry. You had a job offer from Tesla. You were going to start, and then you saw some ideas in a stack of paper and decided to go with the stack of paper. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, if you put it that way, it doesn't sound like a really smart decision. No, 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 no not at <laughs> but, all. Just, but, but the point, point being, you had this secure, you know, interesting, innovative company. What year was this that you were... This was 2011. Okay. So 2011. So Tesla in 2011, but then Saul. Brings, brings these very interesting ideas, not just a stack of paper, uh, and you decide to say, I want to pursue this, this completely new, unformed, unknown, no paycheck, no necessarily stability idea.
2: All of those things, yeah. I, I think that the reason, <laughs> though, is um, I had just been traveling around with just a backpack for the last year, two shirts and one pair of pants, and stability wasn't something that I needed at that moment. It just was, I was completely free of it. So I didn't, that wasn't something, I mean, I needed to eat. I mean, that seemed like an important thing to do. Um, But I didn't, I didn't. I was free at that moment in time, freer than maybe I had ever been. Um and my my husband, my partner, he's a musician and artist and to him it would never make sense to like go do the stable job instead of something that was creative and full of passion. So I think kind of as a team we thought this made more sense. Um, And I should just, I should also just say that um, Saul wasn't just a random guy I met on the street. (laughs) He, Saul is actually a really incredible inventor. We were in the same lab at MIT. Uh, He's a MacArthur fellow. He started all these companies and um, he's, you know, over the time, since MIT, I had followed what he had been doing, and he was one of the only people whose advice I trusted in terms of what was going to have impact in energy.
0: Mm. Um, also, shout out to Layla's husband, who's in the audience. That's really sweet. We haven't had that before on what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, so Saul, who, whose opinion you trust and who carries a ton of respect and, and accolades in the industry, um, just brings you, brings you these ideas, and you decide to partner with him. And then what would you do?
2: Yeah, uh, so I worked for almost no money um, in a corner of Other Lab. Uh, Other Lab was new at the time, so we had um, you probably heard before that it was a pipe organ factory. Um, it had just moved in. None of the machines or tools were unpacked. So I remember some of those early prototyping days. I was literally cutting up cardboard and putting stuff together. Um, but, but just started exploring the entire space of idea, which was let's take... High volume polymer manufacturing because we look at what what can you make for really cheap uh, at at very high scale. So let's take taking that and then at that time combining it with. Um, with liquids, which was which changed over time, uh, but but how can we actually create a, a machine based on these high volume principles? And there were so many ideas. We went through so many crazy shapes and geometries and applications to all over the solar space. Um, but after about a year of working in the corner on these crazy ideas, started to hone in on on what made sense. And and one of the things that um, that, that that happened along the way as we realized that our idea of kind of using liquid to move things around was just one of the worst ideas we could ever possibly have had. And uh, because liquid is really, uh, as soon as you have a leak with liquid, things are, are are pretty much over. Uh, we realized, so basically we had, we are actually, we were going to conferences with our, our crazy prototypes and we we're just like this liquid stuff. It's just, it's a, it's a headache. And I said, I was basically like, we have to figure out how to do this with a better fluid How about air? That seems a lot easier to to run with. And and as soon as we realized that um, we could build this with air, everything became really easy. And suddenly everything fell into place. And it was probably, I think, my 12th uh, grant proposal that I wrote um, was finally when those ideas coalesced and, and moved forward.
0: And this is a perfect time, too, to explain for people who don't know, what is Sunfolding? What is yeah, the product? Yeah, idea.
2: Okay, so uh, we are building a new kind of solar tracker. Uh, but underneath that, we're basically reinventing how we think about machines. So a traditional machine, uh, industrial machines that we've been building for basically ever, as uh, motors and gearboxes um, and lots of linkages to link things together. And in the solar power plant, um, uh, you basically took this system that was pretty simple. So solar maybe five or maybe five, ten years ago, almost all solar power plants you saw were basically panels and posts. And one of the most beautiful things about solar is that you had this incredibly simple system that was really easy, pretty easy to install. Um, And then about five, five, seven years ago, people realized uh, if you started, if you move those panels over the course of the day, even though you're adding some extra cost to the overall plant, your return on investment was so much better. Um, So people started uh, adding trackers, solar trackers, to the system. Um, And the problem was that even though they were getting this better return on investment, they were getting a lot more headaches. um, Because the only way that people could think of to really move these things around is the way you build machines. You put a motor and gearbox on it, you put this long torque tube along the row, you put bearings on all the posts, you link as much together as you can to get the cost down, and you throw extra steel into the system to stiffen the whole thing up. Um, And so uh, basically, uh, you had this relatively uh, complex machine in the field. So uh, getting back to what sunfolding is, um, is let's get rid of all of the complexity of the machine and let's get rid of as much of the material as we can because in the solar plant anything that is not that solar panel is really extraneous to the system you just don't need it so let's get rid of everything we can so uh, sunfolding basically creates a machine that takes the functionality of motors and gearboxes and all of those linkages and replaces it with air so we're actually using air pressure in a place where you would use a gearbox and use air pressure in a place where you would actually put a steel tube. Um, And I won't go too deep into the details of this, but uh, figuring this out meant that we could actually replace all of those components with this one single part. And then suddenly your solar plant looks really simple. It starts to look back back to the simplicity you had before, where you have your post, you have your panel, and then you have this drive system on every post that's primarily, primarily composed of air.
0: And so as you've you've developed this product, um, as you were getting started, you said on your 12th grant is when you decided to make Something that switch there. to air. Um, so where did, what was the first capital into the company grant capital? Where did it come from? What did that look like?
2: Yeah. So I had a really tiny uh, salary. I was basically um, piggybacking on a DARPA grant that other lab did when we were working on those initial ideas for the first year, year and a half. Um, and, uh, Anecdotally, um, I remember uh, Saul and I were talking, and we were basically said, we have talked to every investor that we know. And Saul actually knew a lot because he's, he's started a number of companies. We've talked to every investor we've known. We've done about a dozen of these grant proposals, and nothing is happening.
0: How many investors had you talked to?
2: dozens. um, Not that many in person, because not that many would come talk to us in person (laughs) at that time for many reasons. One was because Solyndra was pretty recent. A lot of people had been burned. Um, There wasn't much capital happening in 2011, especially for solar hardware. And, you know, people who we pitched the idea to just, okay, you're reinventing machines, plastics, air, just, it just, they were basically like, sounds crazy. Just one of those crazy inventors coming up to me. Um, so uh, we didn't get that much traction on the investor front um, or, or sorry, we had no traction on the investor front. <laughs> excuse me. Um, and, and, and way we, we had one or two investors who who were close with uh, with Saul who said, I'll be happy to talk to you as soon as, as, soon as you have your first customers. And I said, I think we're a little far from that. Um, but so basically, I remember it was a Wednesday that Saul and I had the discussion. He's like, you know what? We've got this great robotics project. You could come back and work in robotics. And I was just like, I just switched off from robotics. Uh, and that's not that's not the next step along this path. Um, but I I literally remember it was... Uh, So that happened on a Wednesday. It was Friday morning. We got the notification from RPE that we got funding. And then later that day, we also got a phone call from a company that said they wanted to give us money to make this happen. Oh, my gosh. It was almost like uh, just at the point you think it's all going to go down, it suddenly all turned
0: around. Do you remember your reaction when you got the news?
2: Yeah. I, I think I woke up really early because I had insomnia. I think it was like five in the morning and um, my husband was still asleep and I started screaming and running up and down the hallways. So uh, luckily he figured out pretty soon that the house was not
0: on fire. Uh-huh. Instead, said something really
2: great had happened.
0: That's great. And then what did that money allow you to do? Um, including, you know, who, who, was it just you? Were you alone? Was it lonely? Did you get to hire people? What did, what did the hired trajectory look like over time?
2: Yeah, and it was really important to hire some people. I was lucky because Other Lab has this really kind of interesting structure where there are people who um, can, can help on projects here and there. So I wasn't completely alone on Sunfolding, um, but I had no one who was working full-time on it. Um, and so uh, right away, got to hire a couple people, physics and someone who's great at mechanical engineering and manufacturing, um, and got to start working on building real Things. And one of the challenges we had uh, was we were leveraging this high-volume manufacturing. The problem with high-volume manufacturing is it's not really set up for the iterative cycle you need for doing innovation. Um, and so uh, the RPE grant enabled us to go to these, um, these high-volume manufacturers and start to figure out how to make these. Gotcha.
0: Um, and then how did you, how did you build the business from there? Where did the capital come from? Where did you find the people? Um, what was it like building it and how did you know how to do it? Um, yeah, so, so, uh, had to figure out a
2: lot of it as we went along. Um, but I have to say having the ARPA-E team there was really important. Uh, I wasn't sure what working with the government was going to be like. Um, I thought it was going to be kind of like um, we had to beg them so that we could move forward with our grant and it would always be like reporting to someone, um, lots of overhead. But I was really surprised by how kind of collaborative it ended up being and I realized oh, they have just as much incentive as I do to make sure that this is a success. Um, And once I realized that, the relationship to them really changed, and suddenly I was contacting them all the time to get help, um, uh, leveraging their expertise to to think about how do we think about the business side, how do we think about this side. And it's really important when you're a startup and you have three people uh, to not try to do it all yourself. Figure out any place where you can get resources Go out and get them, and so we. I think we really uh, maximized uh, what we could do with Department of Energy. we working with RPE um, to to really figure out how to move forward, and I also think the miles, having those milestones early on as a startup that you have when you have those government awards really helps keep you on task, uh, as well as it's amazing to have a group of people who dive into every single piece of data you have and make sure that you didn't forget anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a big part of how we how we got stuff to work early on. Um, but I would say the first few years, um, we were just an R&D project that was government funded. And um, I think that uh, that in itself was, it was, was a lot of learning, but there was a point um, after about a year and a half of working at this um, that something really weird happened that um, never happens, which was what we were working on worked, was working better than we had hoped or expected. And I assure you this never happens. Um, uh, Saul actually came at one point and was looking and he was like, that's eerie. <laughs> uh, and But it was clear that what we were building, it was almost like it just, it just needed mm. to be built. It wanted to be built. Um, and at that point, RPE gave us a second award to take mm. it to the next level. Um, we got a grant from the California Energy Commission to take it to the next level. And I took a step back and I said, wow, we have technology that is going to work. Now we have to figure out what happens next. It's not more R&D. Mm-hmm. It has to look like something else. Mm-hmm.
0: What did, in this process, what did come easily easily to you? What just felt natural and like this was all just meant to be? And then what did not come easily?
2: Yeah. Um, I think the part that always came easily to me that was really important was Always seeing what the impact could be of what I was doing, and that fueled the passion I needed to get over all the fears and setbacks you get along the way early in these projects. Um, every single step of the way I could see that if we could if we were successful and that this really worked, it would have measurable impact. It would really change things across the board. And that knowledge fueled me and kept me going. And I think that that kind of passion is really important when you're founding a startup because people don't realize how long it takes. It takes so long to get from idea to I don't know, IPO or acquisition or whatever your end game is, uh, but really, or just just wrap like widespread, de- widespread deployment. And if you're working in hardware, that's even longer. So you're talking you know, eight to 10 years to get to the end. And so I think the thing that came really easily to me was um, always finding kind of this source of energy to move me forward and keep me going.
0: It's a renewable energy. Yeah, it's renewable, very sustainable. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Um, and so you're at this point now where you've been this R and D shop for a while, but it sounds like you you have gotten some investors, including more you know family offices, VC type funding, uh, to the point where you can actually start to. To look at commercialization, is that right?
2: Yeah. So what happened at that R&D moment, as I said, okay, now we have to start to figure out how to build a product. We have a technology in our toolbox. How do we build a product? Uh, So then we hired our first uh, non-technical hire, Gwen Rose, who was formerly the COO of Vote Solar. And I remember the first conversation I had with Gwen. We were sitting across from each other, and we were both talking about solar and neither of us knew what the other person was talking about, and that was when I that was when I realized how much more there was to do. Um, and so Gwen actually came on board, and she really helped us start building SunFolding as a business. Um, and um, along that way, uh, I said, "Okay, now we need someone who can really help us build the product." Um, so we uh, found uh, Matt Schneider, who's now our VP of Product. Um, he was the founder of Ray Tracker, which was one of the first widely used trackers in the US. He brought that all the way from concept to gigawatt scale, getting acquired by First Solar along the way. Um, and when he saw what we were doing, he decided he wanted to come, come check it out. And after about a year of consulting with us, he said, I'm ready to jump on board and I'm gonna bring my key people from First Solar to make this happen. Wow,
0: wow. So how, and how, big, is, how big was the team at that point and how big is it now?
2: Yeah, so when right when Gwen joined, we had three people. Not very big. Um, now we're up to about uh, uh, 15 to 20, depending on how you count. Um, looking, looking to expand even more. Um, but uh, basically, after that product phase, um, there's still there was still the product phase, which took several years of reliability testing, um, and figuring out actually what the product looked like. And over, I'd say, the last year and a half, we've transitioned into the business phase, which is yet another phase of your company. Um, and at that point, um, we started bringing on more business people, including uh, Jurgen Krenke, who's our new CEO. That's
0: great. In all of this, it sounds, I mean, it doesn't sound easy, but it sounds like there's this, this fluid development process, uh, but I know it wasn't all easy. What were some of the darkest moments?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of dark moments when you're in a startup. <laughs> Which one? Um, you know, I think one of the hardest things about a startup is all those moments when you're about to run out of money. And I think every single founder understands this because until you're at the point where you're the thing you've built is what's bringing in the money, you have to find someone else to give you the money. And I think that there's a challenge in there because it's not... It's not necessarily a meritocracy where the money goes. I've learned this uh, from looking at where the money's been going over a long period of time. Um, so much of it is the, the fad. It's related if fads of the time. There's politics. There's just, you know, someone's experience they had 10 years ago will, will, will affect how they look at what you're doing. Um, so many things come into play so it's not just with it's not just that you can build the best thing and it, it, you obviously have a business plan and you're going to get funding that's just not true um, you have to really be smart about figuring out how you're going to bring in money at different phases of the company um, and we were really fortunate because we did get a family office on um, about in the middle of the, of the project um, the family offices I think are one of the um, real godsends to energy right now because they are filling that gap between um, where uh, government will fund it and the investors, because the investors don't necessarily come in very early, especially for hardware and energy.
0: Mm-hmm. Any other moments that you want to share that may have applicability to, to the entrepreneurs that are here tonight listening or those that are listening across the country?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, so I would say the most important thing to do is to make friends with your fear. Uh, I, think, I think it'll always come up again and again um, as you're building something. And if you really care about what you're doing, you keep going, even though you feel that fear and you see it, because that's it's your job, honestly. Um, and that's been, uh, I think, my ability to be terrified and still do what needs to be done, I think is actually one of the reasons that um, we're still here.
0: Um, I hope somebody tweeted that. Um, <laughs> um, make friends with your fear. Uh, that's that's a well put. Um, were there any moments, I know you said the biggest fear is always running out of money. Were there any moments where you felt like you were actually going to close the doors or or not be able to pay yourself? I know early on it's always kind of tenuous, but did it, did it ever get to that point? And if so, what got you through?
2: Yeah, I mean... I would say we've gotten to that point many times, but sometime, for some reason it all comes together. And it was almost like that moment that happened in the very beginning when we were about to close the doors and it didn't feel right. And then it just flipped. And I don't know uh, um, if there's much you can, you can always plan for it. You just have to, you know, do the best you can and, um, yeah, keep, 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 keep it going.
0: Has your leadership changed? I know there there have been these different iterations of the company as the company has grown and scaled. Has your leadership changed over that time? And if so, how?
2: Yeah. So I had done some management and leadership before I started SunFolding, but nothing on the scale of what was required to run a startup company. Um, And I would say that when I started, I said, okay, now I'm a CEO. Let me look at what I saw all these other CEOs doing my whole life, and let me pretend to be them. And that did not work well at all. Uh, So basically I had seen a lot of these kind of very – um, alpha CEOs and I said, okay, that's that's what I have to do. Got to really, you know, put people in their place, and it doesn't match my personality, and nobody likes it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, as you know, along the way, I had to just do some soul searching and say, is that the only way that you can lead? Is the only way to lead to act in this particular way that doesn't match who I am? Um, and I started to realize that there are. Other ways to lead. Um, there's collaborative leadership. And there's, I think you're actually not you're doing a real disservice to your company if you lead in a way that doesn't match who you are. And I think there's a lot of space, especially right now in these times, for uh, people to lead in a way that is authentic. And over time, I've been developing that. It doesn't, it, you know, you don't just have the aha, I can just be me and it'll all be great. You know, I, I realized that I could have a different kind of leadership style. And then I started to say, okay, so with that leadership style, what are the processes I have to put in place? And, and how, what are the ways that we have to communicate to the team? And how do we set things up so that we can have a really kind of collaborative leadership environment?
0: Mm-hmm. In addition to the leadership evolution, are there lessons that you know now that, you wish you would have known sooner and, and what lessons were the hardest to learn over time?
2: Um, I think the biggest lesson that I probably haven't learned yet, which is that it's never going to be perfect when you have a startup. Um, and never, maybe it's never going to be perfect no matter if you're a startup or not. Um, but I'm definitely a perfectionist. Um, I actually think a lot of, um, I will say women I work with tend to be real perfectionists with their work. And what I've found is that, um, if, it's, if, it, if it has to be perfect, then you don't necessarily hone in on um, what the core important thing is you need to focus on in that moment. And so I've really been trying to change into not just thinking about how to make it perfect, but how to work on what matters.
0: Um, related to, to being a woman, being a CTO, CEO woman, um, do you think your leadership is different because of your gender?
2: Probably, <laughs> probably. I mean, I think my leadership is different because of who I am, but it also is different because um, we see gender, and so people have treated me different along the way and along my path, um, and people treat me different now. I'm sure in the workplace and beyond. And so, um, I think that I think that there's a new space for female leadership, and I, you know, I'm happy to be part of that. But I also think it's really hard to be a female leader. Because I do think there is more expected of female leaders than there are of other people. And I also think that the kind of communication we're used to from leaders is different when it's coming from a woman.
0: What advice would you have for female founders or women who are considering starting companies that are listening?
2: Uh, My advice is, if you're building a company, you get to pick your people and you get to build the culture. You can create a culture that works and Uh, There are a ton of men who would love to work in an environment that's not toxic. So you can create that non-toxic environment and you can find amazing people to work there, men and women alike.
0: Um, Before we go to our high voltage round, uh, what does the future of energy look like?
2: I think the future of energy looks like change. Um, I think that especially... With, and we think that solar has come along so far, and it really has, because all of a sudden we're in this position where solar is one of the cheapest energy sources. But it's such a small part of the energy landscape right now. And so I've been really realizing that all of us that are in solar and, and, other, and other forms of renewable energy, we're about to build the new energy infrastructure of the planet. And that's fascinating. I mean, I think, I think we don't even know what it's going to look like. I mean, it's changed so much in the decade that I've been in solar, and I think it's going to keep changing at this rapid pace as we, as we, as we grow really fast. And yeah, I'm excited to see what happens next.
0: I'm excited you're leading it. Um, high Voltage Round, these are quick questions, quick answers, uh, starting with, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why?
2: Um, I would be a great blue heron. Uh, I love watching great blue herons in Golden Gate Park. Uh, they have this incredible focus. I've actually seen one stand for half an hour, uh, about to catch a gopher. Um, so they have they have this incredible. They catch incred- gophers. Yeah, it's great because we need to get rid of the gophers in Golden Gate Park. No so, no, so they 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 have this incredible focus, and then they have so much power mm-hmm. and so much grace. Um, and, um, as an, as a plug, they're nesting in Golden Gate Park right now in Stowe wow. Lake. So did it get the, the gopher? Amazed- it did get the gopher. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's what focus will get you. Yeah. Patience we'll you and to- grace.
0: <laughs> get you the gopher. Yeah. Get your gopher. <laughs> um, what inspires you?
2: Hmm. I think the thing I find the most inspiring is, is seeing people love what they're doing. Deep passion for pretty much anything. It doesn't have to be energy. It just passion for, for anything is what, is what I love to see more than anything else.
0: If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
2: I think that uh, maybe I'd have to go back to uh, robots that play music. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that'd be a big hit these days. Uh, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success?
2: So I would say um, everyone who has, everyone who's helped me along the way, but I think there's been specifically people in my life who, when I've been, when I've, when I've had to do something really hard, were willing to tell me the truth and to give me the support I needed in that moment. And if I look back, On times where I've been doing well and times where I've been flailing, the times where I've been doing well is when I had someone like that in my life who I trusted enough to tell me exactly what I needed to know. When have you failed? I can't say never (laughs) because many times along the way. Um, Let's see. I guess I have... um, I have failed at being the best crossword puzzler on the planet, even though I've been trying really hard for a while. <laughs> my times are still just not going up.
0: Do you want to be the best on the planet? Um, are you actually competing for that? Like, no, you, okay. no, no, no. I just, I just
2: think it's amazing. <laughs> I've really gotten to crossword puzzles in the last year. It's one of the, my, my favorite activities. And the people who are really good at crossword puzzles, anyone who does the New York Times crossword puzzle, uh, they can do the crossword puzzles in three minutes. It's impressive. It's it's, yeah. I'm never going to get
0: there. (laughs) You're doing other very important things. Doing other things. (laughs) Um, What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Mm,
2: Deep questions for the the rapid round. Wow. Um, Something that I thought was true that I no longer believe. Um, That I'm not enough.
0: Mm. Good answer. Uh, when are you your best self?
2: I'm my best self when I'm uh, I'm my best self when I'm doing something I love.
0: Uh, finish Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because companies fail because they don't
2: know how to see or communicate the truth.
0: Deep questions get deep answers on what it takes. <laughs> Help it. <laughs> if I could have done one thing differently, I would have
2: If I if I if I had done something else differently, I would have hmm I would have switched to solar sooner.
0: If the world knew me for just one thing, it would be um the world were to know me
2: for just one thing, it would be my passion.
0: I'm most proud of I am most proud of sunfolding. <laughs> <laughs> and last question to build a successful startup what it takes is
2: what it takes is
0: that you have to really care. Great, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Leila Madrone. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.f-u-n-d. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.